welcome to True Paranormal, the podcast with your host, Leo Rizzuti. Every week we will explore such topics as ghosts, demons, poltergeist, haunted history, time shifts, cryptozoology, and other aspects of the paranormal through listener-submitted accounts, documentary studies, and interviews with the investigators that dedicate their lives to searching for proof of the unknown. So get a fresh cup of coffee, dim the lights, relax, and get ready for a short visit to the realm of the true paranormal. Hi guys, Leo Rizzuti here. Welcome to another episode of True Paranormal, the podcast. As usual, we are coming to you live from the lovely confines of Cleveland, Ohio, where I don't think that I am alone in expressing the opinion that, you know, it's the middle of March. It is time now for winter to just go away. We had another four or five inches of snow up here this week and expecting a couple more before the end of next week. And, you know, it's it's going to be Easter here in a couple of weeks. And I think that winter and snow and cold needs to just go back to Canada, wherever it comes from. And you know what? Take Justin Bieber and Celine Dion with you and just don't come back for another 10 or 12 months. How's that sound? Um, I'm just kind of sick of the ice and the snow everywhere. I'd like to see some green now for a change. But at any rate, guys, we're going to have a uh, kind of a neat show for you tonight. We're going to be looking at some haunted objects. We are going to be exploring some of the more famous ones, uh, including the Dybbuk box and the story of Annabelle, which a lot of you guys are probably familiar with. And then a story of a haunted painting. So hopefully you guys are geared up and ready to explore some haunted objects. I know I am looking forward to it. So without any further ado, let's jump right into that. The first haunted object on our list that we are going to be looking at tonight is the famous Dybbuk box. And this came to my attention I guess probably five or six years ago, I was watching a television show on the Travel Channel, and they were talking about some haunted objects, and this came up as in one of the segments, and it's kind of a neat story uh, that involves a lot of history and a lot of very strange occurrences, so let's have a look at that. And I would like to start off with a hat tip to uh, Sarah Farkas of Historic Mysteries, who did a lot of research on this story. So, Sarah, appreciate that work that you have done. Now, the term dibbuk comes from a Hebrew word meaning cling. In the Hebrew tradition, a dibbuk is a malicious spirit, kind of like a demon, that is bound onto the earth to an object or a person to complete unfinished business. The dibbuk box story that has taken the paranormal world by storm is about a small wine cabinet that was brought to America by a Polish Holocaust survivor named Havila. The history of the Dybbuk box is a fascinating one that will take you from pre-World War I all the way to the present. Havila acquired the box in Spain before her immigration to America. She kept the box hidden away safely in her sewing cabinet for the rest of her life. In 2003, after her death, 
Havila's family held an estate sale where a man named Kevin Manis purchased the box and a bundle of other items. He later spoke to Havila's granddaughter to make sure that she had intended to sell it because he suspected it could be a special heirloom unintentionally placed for sale. He learned that Havila had owned the box since she was a young woman. Manis offered to return the box, but the granddaughter insisted that he take it. She explained that it had sat in her grandmother's sewing room, out of reach and unopened for years because of the Dybbuk inside of it. In a Dybbuk box documentary, Kevin Manis himself explained his experiences. He said that he owned an antique and furniture refinishing business in Portland, Oregon. He brought the box to his warehouse and put it in his workshop. About a half an hour later, he received a call from his salesperson, who was screaming that someone was in the workshop, smashing things and cursing. She claimed that the intruder had locked all the gates and emergency exits, essentially trapping her inside. When Manus arrived, the doors were still locked, but there was no sign of an intruder. Upon entering, he found crushed light bulbs littering the ground and the smell of cat urine even though there was never an animal inside. The salesperson was so frightened that she quit that day after working with Manus for several years. When Manus opened the box, he found two 1920s pennies, a lock of blonde hair bound by a cord, a lock of darker hair also bound by a cord, a small statue engraved with the word Shalom, a small golden wine goblet, a dried rosebud, and a four-legged candle holder. However, he did not realize at the time that there was something very strange about this seemingly harmless cabinet. Although initially he didn't believe that the box had anything to do with the events that would follow, Manus reports a series of horrific experiences while in possession of the cabinet. He had horrible nightmares, usually about a friend or loved one turning into a demonic beast and beating him while the box was in his house. On October 28th, he gave it to his mother as a birthday present, and that same day, she suffered a stroke. After the stroke, she scribbled on a piece of paper, hate gift, and rejected it. He then gave it to his sister, who kept it for one week before returning it, saying that the doors of the box wouldn't stay shut. After that, his brother took it and then returned it. He claimed that he smelled jasmine near the box, but his wife smelled cat urine. Manus took it back. Then his girlfriend asked him to sell it. He sold it to a middle-aged couple, but then found it on his doorstep a few days later with a note saying, This has a bad darkness. Manus says that he wanted to destroy the cabinet, but he didn't know what would happen. Thus, he decided to try to sell it again. Here's an excerpt from his original eBay post. I would destroy the thing in a second, except I really don't have any understanding of what I may or may not be dealing with. I'm afraid that if I destroy the cabinet, whatever it is that seems to have come with the cabinet may just stay here with me. I have been told that there are people who shop on eBay that understand these kinds of things and specifically look for these kinds of items. If you are one of these people, please... Please, buy this cabinet and do whatever you do with a thing like this. Help me. 
He later sold the cabinet on eBay and relayed all the information about his experiences with it. Owners have reported a smell of cat urine or jasmine and other paranormal activity associated with the cabinet. The last person to auction the box on eBay was Josef Nitsky, a student at Truman State University in Missouri. He claims that the cabinet caused him and his roommates to suffer various health problems, light bulbs to break, a bug infestation, odd smells, and more. To make matters worse, his hair began to fall out. He went to a doctor and all of his tests came back negative, so he attributed the hair loss to stress. When he had had enough, Yosef sold the cabinet to Jason Haxton, the director of the Museum of Osteopathic Medicine. He thought of the mysterious box as a historical puzzle. He talked to reporter Leslie Gornstein and said, It came from somewhere. It was made for a reason. What is it and why is it? After a short time, Haxton developed strange health problems such as hives, coughing up blood, and head-to-toe welts. He soon decided to leave it in a storage unit. One night, the smoke alarm in the unit went off. When he went to see what was going on, he didn't find any smoke. He was curious, so he brought the Dybbuk home and began researching it. On another evening, he fell asleep near the computer, but when he woke up, he saw a shadow on the wall moving away from him. After a while, Jason Huxton began wondering if something could be wrong with the story behind the Dybbuk box. He noticed several small details that could prove the history of it to be false. However, he needed to close those loopholes before he could write the book that he was planning. For example, there were similarities between Manus's mother and Hevela. Both ladies were Jewish and died at the age of 103. In his desire to investigate, he called Kevin Manus to ask him more questions about how he came across the box. Then he asked for help to eliminate the Dybbuk inside. The questioning prompted Manus to go back to the place where he bought the Dybbuk box to see if he could possibly get more answers. A long discussion with the granddaughter finally gave him the name Sophie, Havela's cousin, who told him the story of how she and Havela trapped the Dybbuk spirit inside the box. Sophie indicated that between the two world wars, seances were very popular. Sophie and Havela had made a spirit board and somehow came in contact with otherworldly beings. She suspected that the negative energy of the impending war probably attracted evil spirits. Havela and Sophie tried to bind the spirit they had summoned, but failed. This happened on November 10, 1938, the night of Kristallnacht. After the war, they tried to bind it again and were able to trap it inside the wine cabinet. During their conversation, Sophie began apologizing, but Manus was confused. He asked her why she was so upset, and she said that it was probable that the spirit they had summoned had been the cause of World War II. Even though they now understood the history of the wine cabinet, Jason Haxton grew curious as to what was influencing the strange events associated with the Dybbuk box in the state of Missouri. After doing some research, he came across the name Harry Hamilton Lawton. Harry Lawton was famous for his role in the eugenics movement, which inspired Hitler to create a super race. It was because of this movement that Hitler attempted to eliminate races that he considered inferior. 
Coincidentally, Laughlin attended the university that would later be called Truman State University, the school that Yosef Nitsky attended. Haxton believes that the spirit possessing the box is on a mission to show them the truth about the Holocaust. He met with a psychic medium who sensed death and fear surrounding the box. When she touched the box, she felt a stabbing pain in her left ribs and in her head. She believed that those sensations had something to do with the original owner of the box. Jason Haxton consulted various rabbis about how to seal the dibbuk in the box. He secured it in an ark he constructed out of acacia wood and gold, replicating the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the original Ten Commandments. He then hid it in a secret location that he won't reveal to anyone. Psychologist Chris French, head of the Animalistic Psychology Research Unit at Goldsmiths College, doesn't necessarily believe in the authenticity of the events. He thinks that the reason these things happen is because the owners expect them to happen. The owners are already primed, he says, to be looking for bad stuff. If you believe you have been cursed, then inevitably you explain the bad stuff that happens in terms of what you perceive to be the cause. Put it like this. I would be happy to own the object. Nonetheless, the Dybbuk box holds a fascinating story that involves not only the binding of a spirit, but also the binding of the mad eugenic ideologies of two men, Laughlin and Hitler. The connection of these two men was the foundation of the entire Nazi movement. Sadly, it was also the rationale behind the killing of millions of people who would die in the most significant holocaust of all time. Maybe all thanks to the Dybbuk box. So that's the story of the Dybbuk box. Now, where is it now? Apparently, uh, none other than Zach Bagans of Ghost Adventures has purchased it and has it on display in his Haunted Museum in Las Vegas, Nevada. So if you're ever in the Las Vegas area and you want to have a look at a seriously either haunted or cursed object, whichever one you want to consider it, that is definitely the place to go. And I also would just recommend that Zach Bagan's Haunted History Museum is a kind of a neat place to go, whether you're interested in the Dybbuk box or not. The next haunted object we're going to be looking at is a haunted painting. And there are multitudes of haunted paintings throughout history, but one of the most famous ones is a fairly recent item called the Anguished Man. According to legend, the Anguished Man was created by an unknown artist who mixed the oil paint with his own blood. Shortly after his work was complete, the artist committed suicide. It is currently owned by Sean Robinson from Cumbria, England. Robinson inherited the Anguished Man from his grandmother who warned him that the painting was cursed. Although he was fascinated with the painting, Robinson had to keep it in the basement of his house because his wife did not like it. In 2010, he finally removed the Anguish Man from the basement after a flooding and kept it in one of the bedrooms. Since then, Robinson and his family began experiencing strange activities around the house, such as seeing a shadowy figure of a man and hearing sounds of whispering and crying. Further incidents occurred weeks later, haunting each member of the family. 
At nights, Robinson would wake up to see a dark, faceless figure standing in his bedroom, and his wife discovered a stranger lying in bed next to her, leaving her traumatized. The incident that really put the family in danger was when the couple's son, Keenan, felt a presence push him down the stairs. In 2011, Robinson uploaded a video on YouTube titled, Ghost Activity Caught on Tape, Haunting Painting the Anguished Man, which gained over a million views. The video was recorded in one of the bedrooms for eight hours, condensed down to about three minutes, and contains footage of the door closing on its own while the painting is in the room. In addition to that, a loud bang and sounds of scraping can be heard in the video. Since then, Robinson uploaded more videos, posting updates about the painting and capturing further paranormal activity in the house, such as distorted sounds and a mysterious ghostly figure running past the camera. Although these videos are straightforward evidence that there is a spiritual presence lurking in the house, some people questioned its authenticity. An example of this is shown in a 2012 episode of Discovery Channel's Weird or What, a show about unexplained mysteries, where a segment focused on the anguished man. A paranormal investigator named Mike St. Clair was interviewed in that segment, claiming that Robinson's video were a hoax. St. Clair explained that the strange movements could easily be replicated by pulling the door shut with a fishing rope to give the illusion that it's closing on its own and using an actor to run past the camera. Robinson also appeared in the episode to tell his story and briefly mentioned about the hoax rumors, stating, A lot of people are skeptical, and I can understand that because I was a skeptic myself and still am. But the footage is there for you to see it. It wasn't faked. There could be a perfectly reasonable explanation, but I haven't found one yet. Of course, it didn't take long for the internet community to come up with theories and further urban legends about the anguished man on websites such as Reddit and Creepypasta. The urban legends posted on Creepypasta is similar to Robinson's story, where a man named Michael finds the exact same painting in his basement and hangs it up in his bedroom. However, this story is more graphic as Michael wakes up from sleep with his ear slit down the middle and the walls of his house covered with horrifying messages written in blood. To this day, Robinson refuses to destroy the painting and keeps it in his basement to avoid any more harm to his family. He is currently planning on bringing his story to the big screens as La Brea Pictures have acquired the rights to make a film about the anguished man. To this day, Robinson refuses to destroy the painting and keeps it in his basement to avoid any more harm to his family. So there you guys go, the story of the anguished man. Now let's talk for a moment about these shows that purport to investigate haunting activities and want to try to prove or disprove whether or not they are hoaxes. And I love these kind of shows because I kind of tend to view most things from a skeptic's point of view. I tend to believe that more often than not, there's a rational explanation for things, but sometimes you just don't have a rational explanation. Sometimes the only explanation is that there is something supernatural going on. 
And what I have found in these shows is that more often than not, they go in with the viewpoint that it has to be a hoax, that there is never a possibility of any kind of supernatural activity, and they will go to extreme lengths to try to show how something can be hoaxed. And certainly, in my mind, if you take any occurrence, you can certainly figure out a way to hoax it. There is going to almost always be some kind of mechanism that you can use, some kind of setup that you can put together where you can hoax any kind of occurrence. And the problem with that that I have is that it usually takes so much work and so much effort that I cannot imagine any person going to the lengths that these folks do in order to hoax things. Uh, I can understand if people use CGI and things like that, but those are really, really obvious. And if you think you're going to fool anybody using CGI, please just don't even attempt it because I've got a 10-year-old daughter who can pick up CGI stuff. It is not fooling anybody. But when you have to figure out, okay, we've got this person that is levitating over their bed and maybe they had a scaffold set up that you can't see on screen and they have wires that you can't see and all this other stuff. And if you have to go to that kind of length, no rational person is going to try to hoax that kind of thing. So a lot of times Occam's razor is still going to be in, in effect. It doesn't matter whether it's natural or supernatural. The most obvious and the clearest explanation is oftentimes the actual explanation. Sometimes the supernatural is just supernatural. And I honestly wish that these shows would consider that as an explanation as opposed to just saying, well, since we couldn't figure out how to hoax it, they must have used a method that we didn't think of. Uh, just my two cents worth. But at any rate, take the story however you will. Um, and I am going to try to find these videos that um, the guy that owns the painting has posted. And I am going to, if you follow us on Facebook, I'm going to post them on my Facebook page if I can find them. So Hopefully, I'll be able to scour the internet for them. They haven't been removed. So look forward to that, guys. Okay, the last one we're going to be looking at tonight is the very now famous story of Annabelle. And this is a uh, story that involves Ed and Lorraine Warren, which are, I don't want to say they're heroes of mine, but they are folks that I have been to their lectures. I've been to their seminars. I've studied them, and I believe that Ed and Lorraine uh, were and are, because uh, Ed passed a few years ago, Lorraine's still with us, that they are the real deal. And a lot of people try to say that their stuff is hoax, that their stuff is fake, but I've met these folks, and if they are faking it, they are fooling me, and I am not uh, necessarily easy to fool. So, at any rate, let's have a look at Annabelle. There are some downrightly freakishly scary things that reside in this world. Some are well known and some are not. Whether you believe in the supernatural or you don't, many reported cases of paranormal activity still seem to intrigue and mystify. Hauntings are most usually related to places, houses, or cemeteries, and sometimes even people. But 
What if an object other than these is reportedly haunted? Say a supposedly simple benign doll, for instance. Would you believe it was true? Annabelle was the focus of a case that got the attention of famed paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren. They became interested in Annabelle in the early 1970s. This episode in their career was included in the book The Demonologist by Gerald Britt about the Warrens. It has been stated that this is one of the most unusual cases of a possessed object on record. This is Annabelle's story. In 1970, a mother, doting on her only daughter, purchased a Raggedy Ann doll from an antique store. The cute, red-headed little doll was a present for her daughter Donna. Donna was, at that time, residing with her roommate Angie in a small apartment and preparing to graduate from college. Thinking nothing more of the doll than that it was a sign of her mother's affection, she placed the doll on her bed of her room and basically forgot about it. As time passed, both Angie and Donna noticed an air of strangeness about the doll. Apparently, the doll would move. These were relatively subtle movements at first, like a change in position, but as time passed, the movements became more noticeable. The doll was even found once standing upright, leaning against a chair with its legs crossed. After a while, the doll was said to have actually changed rooms. It would be left in the living room before Donna left for work, and upon returning, it would be found on her bed in her room. A moving doll? Very strange indeed. About a month later, Donna began to find what she thought were penciled messages. They appeared to be written in the handwriting of a small child, scribbled and almost illegible, on parchment paper. It could be seen that the messages clearly stated, Help us or help Lou. Donna was uncertain of exactly who the us was. Apparently, Donna had never kept that type of paper in the house either. So, where did the paper come from? Could it have been conjured by the doll itself? Could a doll possibly be writing messages? If so, how? Donna came home one night to find the doll had moved once again. Only this time, Donna felt as though something was off. A menacing presence seemed to emulate from the doll, and she had the deepest urge to inspect it for some reason. What she found would haunt her forever. The doll had blood on it. Blood or what seemed to be blood. A liquid-like red substance appeared on the back of its hands and on its chest. Now completely scared and desperate for help, Donna decided it was time to seek an expert. Something was going on and she wanted answers. Determined to get to the bottom of things, Donna decided to contact a medium. The medium agreed and a seance was held. Apparently, there was in fact a spirit taking up residence in the doll and her name was Annabelle Higgins. From what the medium could determine, Annabelle Higgins was a young girl of only seven when her lifeless body was found in the field upon which the apartment complex now stands. The details of her death never came to light. The so-called spirit basically took up residence in the doll and wanted to stay. Seeing no harm in it and feeling sorry for what the spirit had experienced in life, Donna agreed. 
the true nature of this entity had yet to be revealed. Lou, a friend of Donna's, was less than thrilled with the doll. On numerous occasions, Lou warned Angie that the doll felt threatening and sinister. Something was off, and Lou knew it. Lou's dislike of the doll was well known. He would have more than one terrifying experience with Annabelle. Here is the story of Lou's experience, as related by the Warrens themselves. Lou awoke one night from a deep sleep and in panic. Once again, he had a recurring bad dream, only this time somehow something seemed different. It was as though he was awake but couldn't move. He looked around the room but couldn't discern anything out of the ordinary and then it happened. Looking down towards his feet, he saw the doll, Annabelle. It began to slowly glide up his leg, moved over his chest, and then stopped. Within seconds, the doll was strangling him. Paralyzed and gasping for breath, Lou blacked out. Lou awoke the next morning, certain it wasn't a dream. Lou was determined to rid himself of the doll and the spirit that possessed it. However, Lou would have one more terrifying experience with Annabelle. Preparing for a road trip the next day, Lou and Angie were reading over maps alone in her apartment. The apartment seemed eerily quiet. Suddenly, rustling sounds coming from Donna's room aroused fear that someone had possibly broken into the apartment. Lou, determined to figure out who or what it was, quietly made his way to the bedroom door. He waited for the noises to stop before entering and turning on the light. The room was empty except for Annabelle, who was tossed on the floor in the corner. Lou scoured the room for forced entry, but nothing was out of place. But as he got close to the doll, he got the distinct impression that somebody was behind him. Spinning around, he was quick to realize that nobody else was there. Then, in a flash, he found himself grabbing for his chest, doubled over, cut, and bleeding. His shirt was stained with blood, and upon opening his shirt there on his chest was what looked to be seven distinct claw marks, three vertical and four horizontal. All were hot like burns. These scratches healed almost immediately, half gone the next day and fully gone by day two. From Annabelle, The Curse of the Devil Doll Had the entity finally revealed its true purpose in nature? Usually, claw marks in a paranormal situation relates to a demonic activity. Demonic entities usually lead to cases of possession. The doll may have just been a temporary anchor to the physical world. Possession of a human body may be the true intent. A human possession would make it almost impossible for the demon to be extricated from our world, making the interaction between the spiritual and physical worlds much easier to manipulate. Due to the nature of Lou's experiences, the doll was no longer believed to be a docile spirit, but inhuman and demonic in nature. Donna decided to contact the priest. Bringing in the big guns seemed like the best way to go. Father Hagen was the priest they contacted, and with his help, their case was referred to paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren. As quoted by Father Hagen, Ed and Lorraine Warren immediately took interest in the case and contacted Donna concerning the doll. The Warrens, after speaking with Donna, Angie, and Lou, came to the immediate conclusion that the doll itself was not in fact possessed, 
but manipulated by an inhuman presence. Spirits do not possess inanimate objects like houses or toys. They possess people. An inhuman spirit can attach itself to a place or an object, and this is what occurred in the Annabelle case. This spirit manipulated the doll and created the illusion of it being alive in order to get recognition. Truly, the spirit was not looking to stay attached to the doll. It was looking to possess a human host. The spirit, or in this case inhuman demonic spirit, was essentially in the infestation stage of the phenomenon. It first began moving the doll around the apartment by means of teleportation to arouse the occupant's curiosity in hopes that they would give it recognition. Then, predictably, a medium was brought into the apartment to communicate with it. The inhuman spirit, now able to communicate through the medium, and preyed on the girl's emotional vulnerabilities by pretending to be a rather harmless, lost young girl. During the seance, it was allowed permission to haunt the apartment. Insofar as a demon is a negative spirit, it then set about causing patently negative phenomena to occur. It aroused fear through the doll's weird movements, brought about the materialization of disturbing handwritten notes, created symbolic drops of blood on the doll, and ultimately attacked Lou, leaving behind the symbolic mark of the beast. The next stage of the infestation phenomenon would have been complete human possession. Had these experiences lasted even another two or three weeks, the spirit would have completely possessed, if not harmed or killed, one or all of the occupants of the house. Again, from Annabelle, The Curse of the Devil Doll. An actual exorcism was conducted on the doll before they left, hoping it would rid Annabelle of the infectious demon. Upon the conclusion of the investigation, Ed and Lorraine decided the best course of action to prevent the spirit from doing any further harm was to relieve Donna of its presence and take the doll home with them. They weren't completely sure if the doll had been exercised of the entity. Should you ever want to visit the famous Annabelle, she can be found at the Warren Occult Museum in Moodus, Connecticut museum is run by Lorraine Warren, the famous paranormal investigator and now frequent guest of the television show Paranormal State. Warren relates that Annabelle still moves around occasionally and is still known to make growling noises at unsuspecting visitors. Okay, so that is the story of Annabelle. And some of you folks who know me personally know that I am not a big fan of dolls. And stories like this do not encourage that in me. Uh, But I do have a doll story that I wanted to relate to you guys. And this is not necessarily a, a haunted doll, but this goes back to my why I'm kind of scared or wigged out by dolls, particularly. Um... And especially the dolls that uh, some of you guys might be familiar with, the larger ones who have the eyes that open and close as you sit them up or lay them down, things like that. Those are really the ones that get to me. And uh, let me tell you a little story about why. When I was very young, I was probably 11 years old or so, we were going to football practice and my sister was driving, and 
I had, uh, it was her and my niece and my nephew. My niece was probably five or six months old. My nephew was three years old. Uh, and he was sitting in the back seat with me. I was sitting by the window reading and he asked me if he could sit by the window. So I, you know, I told him, yeah, sure. You can sit by the window. And this was not in the days where you had to have kids in car seats and things like that. But at any rate, my sister's uh, brakes failed at the uh, bottom of a hill. And she went through an intersection where we got T-boned. And sure enough, my nephew died. Uh, it's, it was a very dark time for my family. It was a very difficult time to go through. Um, my sister was very seriously hurt in the accident. And of course, the emotional trauma of losing her son was far worse than the physical trauma that she suffered. Fortunately, my niece was pretty much all right. I was cut up a little bit. I had, um, you know, suffered a little bit of injuries, but the fact that I and my nephew had switched spots, uh, for whatever reason meant that he died and I lived. It's something I kind of carry with me to this day, but at any rate, while my sister was in the hospital recovering over her injuries, my mother was staying with her a lot, which meant that uh, me and my brother stayed with my aunt and uncle and my cousins. And my cousins are wonderful people. I'm uh, still very good friends with them and still keep in touch as best we can, things like that. But they were, you know, they were girls, uh, so they had a lot of girl toys. And so we did our best to try to find stuff that we could mess with in the few weeks that we were there, but weren't really having a whole lot of success in finding boys things to play with. So what my cousins had was, though, was they had a bunch of dolls. And we were staying in a bedroom where at the foot of the bed was their a couple of their dolls on these cedar chests. And I could have sworn that one or two nights when I was laying there trying to go to sleep, I saw one of the dolls move and it freaked me out. I had, at this point, I had seen some haunting activity. I had already been interested in it, but I had never seen anything like this. And it wigged me out to the point where the next day I literally took the doll and this was a big, probably three feet tall, one of those pop open eye dolls uh, that my cousins had and I put it inside of the cedar chest, put blankets on top of it, closed the cedar chest, put more blankets on top of that and would not even talk about what was happening. Well, the next night I am lying in bed and I wake up, I've got to go to the bathroom or something. I can't remember exactly, but I think I went to the bathroom and I came back into the bedroom and this was late, late at night. I was the only one up in the house. And when I came back from the bathroom, sure enough, that doll was laying on top of the cedar chest and it was not there whenever I got out of bed. And it was there 30 seconds later with me being the only one up in the house. And it, scared me worse than anything I have possibly ever experienced again in my life. The fact that the doll was out was not the most disturbing part. The fact that the head was turned towards the bed and while the doll was lying down, the eyes were open. That was what got me. <laughs> and to this day, I cannot 
fathom why anybody would ever have those kind of dolls. I know girls like them and yay for them, but I do not like them. So dolls are not exactly my favorite thing on this earth. And the story of Annabelle is just one more notch in the belt to me of why I do not mess with haunted dolls. So anyway, that's a little bit of my history. I hope you guys enjoyed that little bit of tidbit uh, into my background. But the bigger thing was, this is the story of Annabelle. And as far as I know, it still resides in the Warrens Museum in Connecticut. So if you're ever in that area and you want to see Annabelle, I uh, highly recommend going by the Warrens and checking that place out. It's a absolutely fascinating museum. And Lorraine Warren is a wonderful, wonderful person. And she runs it. Um, they don't make a whole lot of money from it, but she welcomes any visitors that are interested in it. And she'll, you know, she'll have a conversation with you about it. And if you get a chance to meet her and have a talk with her, you'll find she's just as warm and genuine a person as you would ever want to meet. So, at any rate, that's Annabelle. Hope you guys enjoyed that little story. Well, guys, that's going to do it for this week's episode of True Paranormal, the podcast. I would like to thank all of you guys for joining us this week and every week. And if you have your own stories of haunted possessions or haunted activity in your own homes and you'd like to share them with us, be sure to contact us on Facebook at True Paranormal, the podcast, and hit that message button or email us at trueparanormalpodcast at gmail.com and we'd be glad to share your story on one of our future broadcasts. Also, if you have any questions or comments, the Facebook page is probably the best place to do that. I know there's other forums that the podcast gets broadcast on and some of them have comment sections, some of them don't. So I always recommend go to the Facebook page, ask us anything, and we'll be glad to get back with you on that. Also, if you guys listen to us on iTunes, if you would, give us a rating and a review, possibly. Let us know that you're out there. We'd love to hear from you guys on that. Be sure to join us uh, next week, where we are going to get back into sharing some of our listeners' stories that you guys have been sending in. I appreciate that. Until then, my name is Leo Rizzuti. This is True Paranormal, the podcast, and we'll see you guys next week. Next week.